Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest Republican presidential debate in which Nikki Haley called Vivek Ramaswamy scum and others on the stage wanted to go to war against Iran, China, Mexico and even Canada. Joining us is a former Republican, Justin Higgins, who has worked as a policy advisor to a Tea Party, now House Freedom Caucus member of Congress, and worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. He now hosts the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. Then we'll look into the Trump Organization fraud trial in which Ivanka Trump was a witness on Wednesday, repeatedly claiming she did not recall details of the job she did for the family business, which she said she is proud of. Joining us is David K. Johnston, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. Also the co-founder of DCReport.org, his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Then finally, we'll examine the military situation on the ground in Gaza with Daniel Byman, who is a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and editor of the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism, and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad. His latest book is Spreading Hate, the Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, What the Hamas Attack Means for Israel, Netanyahu Has Nothing But Bad Options. And we will discuss whether Netanyahu is destroyed emotionally and is a danger to Israel, as a former Israeli Prime Minister charges. And before we begin, Background Briefing's mission of building a reality-based community in post-truth America is taking on a new urgency now that we have a fundamentalist Christian theocrat in charge of the People's House, as Trump's insurrectionists, know-nothings, election deniers, and armed and angry cult followers threaten to take over the executive branch, having already captured the judiciary. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die please make a tax-deductible donation at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation publictruthmedia.org so that we can continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism, wrapped in the flag and carrying a Bible. And joining us now is Justin Higgins, who has worked as a policy advisor to a Tea Party, now House Freedom Caucus member of Congress, and worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. He now hosts the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. Welcome to Background Briefing, Justin Higgins. Thank you for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Justin. And as a recovering Republican, <laughs> I wanted to uh, get your opinion on what you thought of the latest, uh, most recent Republican presidential debate uh, in Miami, which is, of course, down to a field of five. The person who clearly won the debate uh, wasn't there, Donald Trump, and he's something like 60 points ahead of the nearest rival, 
being Governor DeSantis. But nevertheless, what did you make of it? Well, uh, aside from it being awfully boring, uh, there there were three main takeaways, and you've touched on the first one. Number one, Trump is very likely going to be the nominee, so everybody was playing for second place based on the fact that there was no clear winner last night. I think that that positions uh, Ambassador Haley to be in the catbird seat should anything happen to Trump or heading into 2028. That's way far off, though. My second takeaway was the GOP, when asked for serious policy solutions to serious problems, had no answers, Uh, whether it be China, the economy. It was all old stuff that we've really heard for the last 50 years. And my third takeaway was abortion, abortion, abortion. The, The GOP and Republican Party is stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rock being their evangelical voters who are single issue voters, about 10% of their primary electorate who won't support a candidate that is not extreme on the issues and the hard place being 66% of Americans who support legal abortion early in presidencies. So those were my initial takeaways from last night. But in terms of angling to be vice president, Trump is going to choose somebody completely (laughs) off the wall like Tucker Carlson, isn't he? He's not going to choose any of these so-called rhinos. I can't pretend to know what is going through Trump's mind, nor do I ever want to be able to understand it that deeply. Uh, But yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that he tends to hold grudges and he feels slighted by Ron DeSantis, certainly. Uh, and also probably Ambassador Haley, because she initially, as as you know, promised not to run against him if he ran in 2024. So, uh, and Christie and Scott and Ramaswamy are all just jokers. So I, I don't see the VP coming from them. I do think, though, because of abortion, one issue we touched on, that uh, Trump and his team are probably trying to tell Trump to pick a female uh, for the vice presidency. So... The big takeaway, of course, from it was that when Vivek Ramasamy attacked Nikki Haley, she muttered, your scum. And I guess the other one is that so many on the stage wanted to go to war against Iran, China, Mexico, or even Canada. Yeah, um, I think that Vivek Ramaswamy is scum. Uh, he embodies the worst of that Silicon Valley libertarian ethos where, you know, in their closed door circles, they're all deriding the politicians in D.C. for getting nothing done, for being dumb. They all think that they have some innovative solution to age old problems. It's going to not only solve the issue, but change humanity for the better. And largely speaking, that's all hogwash. Um, So he was just kind of taking the contrarian approach that he typically takes that uh, very acerbic and unlikable uh, mannerisms and personality. Uh, And he brought uh, Ambassador Haley's daughter into a, a national GOP primary debate as an attack line. And it's an unwritten rule of politics that typically people with character don't throw stones at other candidates' uh, children. So that was that was beyond the pale. Um, I would say surprising, but again, he's he's that type of uh, persona that that it should be more to be expected from him. So the Silicon Valley idea is that if, if you 
speak fast and say outrageous things, you're a genius, right? He's very close to uh, Elon Musk, who I, who's probably funding him, right? I mean, isn't he getting his money from Silicon Valley or even from Russia, as uh, some of the, one of the talking heads uh, last night doing the doing the post mortem on the debate suggested? I mean, he he went out of his way to p- present Russian talking points in the beginning. And also, more or less, saying that the NBC moderators uh, were illegitimate and the wrong people to be moderating, and he even suggested that Elon Musk should be one of the moderators. So, <laughs> wild stuff. And and when I describe uh, Vivek Ramaswamy here, it really does apply to the worst of Silicon Valley, like you said. Uh, they are arrogant and narcissistic to the point where they think they're smarter than everybody. They think that inherently, because government is in their way, whether it's regulations that are helping people or bureaucratic regulations that should be gutted, um, they only care about themselves, the product that they're working on, the company that they're trying to create at the expense of everyone else. So they have a general dislike, distrust for government. And, And what does that mean? That means that they think they're the only one that can solve the problem, but also Uh, Government is bad and probably lying to you. So you get all of these conspiracy theorists like you see David Sachs, Elon Musk, Vivek Ramaswamy. I I do believe that they're probably funneling money to him uh, through super PACs and and dark money. Uh, And I think that it's generally speaking, these people tend to be in their own bubbles. They only talk to people who think like them or worship them. Uh, But as everybody is seeing with Vivek, It's not only mainstream media, it's uh, conservatives and MAGA folks on Twitter. Uh, Nobody appears to like this guy because when you see this in action, it's like Elon Musk going uh, and doing a Twitter spaces or on CNBC. They're just naturally unlikable people. And Ian, we love to think that politics is about ideas because it is, but at its foundation, it's about being admired, respected and liked enough that you are going to get somebody to vote for you and put their confidence in you. And that ethos just doesn't apply to the vast, overwhelming majority of Americans, never mind voters. So I guess the question then is, why are we talking about this, Justin? I mean, is this truly a waste of time? I mean, given it, given Trump's 60-point lead. I mean... I think that it's valuable and we need to discuss this because it talks to the current state of the GOP where one of the last six contenders is Vivek, for example, which we just went over in detail. Um, But also there's no new ideas. So the future of the party is looking bleak because they need to break away from Trumpism, but they don't have any type of roadmap, any type of big policy solutions uh, to approach it. And Ian, I thought the most important segment last night came 20 minutes before the end. It was the abortion segment. And people widely praised Nikki Haley. Some even tried to praise uh, Senator Scott. But what I heard, aside from empathy that that uh, Ambassador Haley tried to provide for people who are pro-choice, which is the overwhelming majority of the American populace, uh, was including Haley These were all the most extreme type of abortion views that are possible. Uh, Senator Scott said a 15-week ban. What does that mean? Does that mean states can ban abortion, but in states that it's legal, you can only have an abortion up to 15 weeks? 
That seems pretty extreme to me. And they all echo that. Um, and we can couple that with the results in 2022 post Dobbs, the results in 2023 special elections, the results on Tuesday night's elections, where clearly abortion is a motivating issue. Clearly, the GOP has no messaging uh, consensus that resonates with the American public. And as a result, they are going to get crushed in this issue. And this issue will drag them down in future elections until they can find some type of, of messaging and policy solution that resonates with the American public. Well, I couldn't believe, though, that almost all of the Republicans on the stage last night in uh, Miami all said, I think all of them, maybe maybe one or two didn't, but most of them said that Democrats want abortion legal up until birth, which is insane. I mean, you know, you're talking about a cesarean birth at nine months. I mean... That, that, that nobody does that. It's completely illegal uh, and medically insane. So what are they talking about? It, it, it's ironic, right? Because their the solution that most of them proposed to address abortion, for example, uh, Ramaswamy and DeSantis was they even Haley was that they need to improve their messaging on the issue. Yet they fall back on this lie um, from you know either extremists like far, 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 far lefties, um, uh, you know, idiots like the former racist governor of Virginia, uh, Democrat Ralph uh, Northrum, um, who maybe have misquoted themselves, misspoke. Uh, and their messaging is to essentially come out and, and parrot uh, those lies. So I think what that is about is that they do not have a solution yet. Every single one of them it, with the way that they parsed their language, the way that they were equivocal and squishy, basically implied that they would support a strict across the board abortion ban, maybe with some certain exceptions. Um, so I think the lies go to a larger issue, which is the American public does not trust the GOP on the abortion issue. And for as long as this party, the GOP remains divided on that issue, it's going to allow Democrats to credibly tie every single candidate that doesn't have a clear response to the most extreme abortion policies in the United States. Uh, and they're very conscious of this, um, but they can't move away from it because they will never win a primary if they just throw the evangelicals overboard. So the other moderator, apart from the moderator of uh, Meet the Press and NBC's nightly news anchor, Lester Holt, was Hugh Hewitt, who's a right-wing radio talk show host. And he asked probably the most stupid question of all, but he thought he knew what he was talking about. And he, I think he got his talking points from a military contractor or the military-industrial complex, because he asked them all about that, that China has more ships in their Navy than the U.S. has. And they all rushed to say, yeah, we need to build more ships. Well, that is so stupid. I mean, ships nowadays, particularly aircraft carriers, are just sitting ducks. And it makes absolutely no sense except to boondoggle and to waste money, which is what he was proposing effectively. But again, when I say they all wanted to go to war against either Iran, China, Mexico, even Canada, how's that playing? Is, is the GOP's... GOP base that bloodthirsty? Are they are they itching for a war? So, <laughs> I don't 
think they are actually itching for a war. What they are itching for is a candidate that virtue signals to them that that candidate is the most strident, ardent extreme on an issue. Because in today's GOP politics, you need to be seen as a fighter, uh, whether it be the Tea Party Freedom Caucus, President Trump, uh, DeSantis has tried to mirror himself to those other movements uh, that I mentioned. And what resonates with those voters isn't the policies. It's that they are voting for somebody who doesn't care about uh, political correctness, social norms. They are going to fight to upend everything. So how is it playing? I think uh, on the international stage, to diplomats, to leaders of foreign countries, it's disgusting, deplorable, despicable, not playing well. It's not helping America on the international stage. Um, domestically, I think that this is more par for the course. This is the way that these folks need to run to uh, survive in this current GOP primary voter context. And it really sheds light, in on the abortion issue. You can't be extreme on these other issues and then weak on abortion when the overwhelming uh, plurality of your grassroots party activists, which are the most valuable type of voters in any presidential primary, because they're the voters in the state that have the best relationships. They're certainly going to go out and vote. They're going to get other people to go out and vote. They're going to get money to support those efforts to go get people out to vote. Well, the most strident activists, the most robust uh, are pro-life activists. Uh, so the going to war with everybody, the deporting students on college campuses for having different views, the uh, abortion with no, like uh, at zero weeks is illegal, for example, theoretically, the heartbeat bills, it's all one in the same where they are just virtue signaling to the worst parts of the GOP electorate. And Real quick, your your point about Hugh Hewitt is a brilliant one. He is supposed to be an intellectual heavyweight for the GOP, of which not many exist anymore. Uh, the way that he tried to approach China was not looking at building alliances for deterrence, was not looking at uh, strengthening artificial intelligence, drones, smart weapons, missile defense systems, so on and so forth. It was an aggregate, not the quality of ships, the quantity of ships, which is just such a dumb and straightforward way to approach a battle between two giants to see who can become or may stay in the United States' uh, uh, situation, the global hegemon. To, to boil it down to a finite number of who has the most ships uh, is is very silly, and like he may be in the pocket of, of defense contractors, like you alluded to. Well, just in closing, uh, Justin, we learned today that uh, Joe Manchin is not going to run again, which means that the Republicans will pick up a a seat in West Virginia, and Manchin signaled that he might join no labels, which will almost guarantee Trump's election. Yeah, I don't think he's going to uh, join no labels. So, so that for me, I've been fairly consistent on that. I do think the bigger problem, though, for your audience is if the GOP flips two seats and the Democrats aren't able to flip for Florida, 
which looks very unlikely. That means the GOP will have the Senate. And um, in addition to West Virginia, which is gone, like you said, uh, Montana is a very, very, very red state and a Democrat is defending a seat there. So unless they're able to pick up 13, 14 percentage points in the polls, that looks like it'll be the second seat. And then Democrats, uh, Ian, for your audience, are, de are defending toss ups in the following states, Arizona, Michigan. Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. So uh, from this Democrat's perspective, although I used to be a Republican, it the Senate map in 2024 is looking absolutely awful. And I don't see a scenario outside of a black swan event, which very well may happen, where the Democrats are able to maintain the Senate. Well, Justin Higgins, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much for having me, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Justin Higgins, who has worked as a policy advisor to a Tea Party now House Freedom Caucus member of Congress and worked on Trump's 2016 campaign at the RNC, all before becoming a Democrat and an appointed official for the Democratic governor of Puerto Rico. He now hosts the Politics Plus Media 101 podcast. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking to the Trump Organization fraud trial at which Ivanka Trump was a witness on Wednesday, repeatedly claiming she did not recall details of the job she did for the family business, which she said she is proud of. Everybody loves cowboys and clowns. You're everybody's hero for just a little while. But when the goodbyes are said and the spotlight goes dead, there's no one left who cares to hang around to love the cowboys and clowns. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, David K. Johnston a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump, a 13-year veteran of the New York Times. He won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code, and he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org, and his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Welcome to Background Briefing, David K. Johnson. Glad to be with you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, David. And Trump's family have been testifying, culminating with his daughter, Ivanka, on Wednesday, where she gave a testimony that was pleasant, uh, friendly, but absolutely uh, with no substance. She kept not re being able to recall. So what did you make of her testimony? Well, first of all, um, she said, I don't recall so many times that, you know, one should be concerned she may not remember the birthdays of her children. <laughs> it, it, this was strategic. Uh, for her to not recall some fine details is perfectly understandable, but to not recall meetings she was in, particularly when it turns out that she negotiated one of Donald's, her father's loans, and knocked the interest rate down by six percentage points. Uh, that's an astonishing thing, and that can't be the result of, oh, I don't remember that. I, uh, that's just not credible. But she also did reveal one thing that I think is highly significant and will 
probably be cited by Judge Ngoran when he eventually writes his opinion on the damages that are owed by the Trumps. She said that when uh, she she acknowledged, she, well, back up. she did not dispute any of the documents presented by the New York State Attorney General, Liam. Uh, so when she doesn't recall, that means the document will stand as the best evidence. And uh, that, that, of course, doesn't help Donald Trump one bit, but she negotiated to lower the minimum net worth Trump had to maintain to get one of his Deutsche Bank loans from $3 billion to $2.5 billion. And part of the way that Trump made the $2.5 billion net worth is he got uh, Ivanka, her brother Don Jr., and her brother Eric to pledge part of their fortunes to be counted as dad's money for the purposes of the loan guarantee. Now, even among parents of modest means with grown children, the bank of mom and dad often still operates, right? Parents will advance money to their kids or make gifts to their kids uh, because they need something. It's extraordinary that a man who, remember just a few years ago, claimed to be worth more than $10 billion needs to, in effect, borrow from his children who work for him. And what better illustrates that Donald Trump is not a business genius, he's a fraud, and he needs to rely on his children to to uh, uh, qualify for a loan? Hmm. Well, Ivanka's testimony was highly anticipated, but it would seem to me that it was pretty flat. After the proceedings, uh, Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, called uh, Ivanka Trump very, very nice, very friendly. But she added, at the end of the day, this case is about fraudulent statements of financial condition that she benefited from. So the defense starts on Monday. What are they going to do? I mean, apparently they've got a whole bunch of witnesses they're going to present. Yeah, they, they have a prospective witness list that's over 100 people. Uh, first, what I expect will happen is that they will ask Judge Ngoran for a directed motion of uh, dismissal, that there's nothing wrong. That's not going to happen, um, but they're going to make that motion to preserve the record on it. Uh, they will probably call Don Jr. and Eric back to the witness stand, and the reason for that is a matter of legal strategy. They were not cross-examined when the attorney general put them on as witnesses, Uh because in cross-examination, you're limited to questioning the issues that were brought up on direct plus impeaching someone. By calling Don Jr. and Eric as witnesses, they can now present the narrative that the Trump family wants about the events that took place. Of course, they will then be subject to cross-examination by Letitia James prosecutors. Um, they will also, no, no doubt, bring in bankers who will say, oh, we made a lot of money off this deal. That doesn't matter, and the judge may refuse to allow that testimony. And let me explain that the issue here is one of disgorgement of ill-got gains. So uh, even if the banks made money, it doesn't matter. So let's assume that you work for a retailer who shuts down uh, in the evening and opens up the next day, and you take $100 out of the till, put it in your pocket, you go to the casino, you win a couple thousand bucks, you put $200 in the till um, to your boss, 
and go on about things. Well, no, no. Legally, you're an embezzler and a thief. And secondly, the money you want at the casino is not yours. It is you must disgorge that money because it's ill-got gains. And yet Trump keeps trying to push this idea through his lawyers that, well, even if I gave financial statements that were false, and we're not saying they were false, but even if they were, it doesn't matter. The banks all made a profit. Well, the banks took risks they shouldn't have taken, and other people didn't get loans they might have gotten because of Trump's actions. That's the issue here, disgorgement of ill-got gains from Trump's con man activities. And that is why Letitia James, the Attorney General of New York, is asking for $250 million, right? Because that's, had he not lied, that's what the bank should have earned in terms of right. profits. And, and and the judge has a lot of leeway here. I mean, he'll have to do calculations, as he did in his original finding, that the first of the seven civil fraud charges, this is not a criminal case, it's civil, but the first of the seven, uh, the judge has already found that there was persistent fraud by Donald Trump, his two older sons, and a couple of the company executives. Um, there are six other matters that require proving that there was intent, that this wasn't inadvertent, uh, that they intended to cheat. And I think they've, the, they've proven their case, and I would expect Judge Gorin will uphold the other six in his ultimate opinion on this. Um, the uh, amount of money However, the judge awards could be a lot less or a great deal more. Uh, for example, uh, there's now clear evidence that there was fraud involved in obtaining the lease and the bank loan to convert the old post office in Washington, D.C. into the Trump Hotel, which they sold for a profit of about $139 million, plus they made some money along the way. And the judge could find that to be part of what has to be disgorged. Well, so, uh, well, no, we'll she, see. I mean, it's going to be a while. Yeah. Well, but uh, on the stand uh, on Wednesday, Ivanka Trump waxed lyrical about that deal. What a great deal that she'd made. She's uh, proud of her work that she did. So I, I'm sorry. I, I, I don't recall. I don't recall. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this was a success. I recall. I was a genius. I mean, right. that's just so classic Trump. Right. Well, she's a chip off the old block, right? Uh, absolutely. She is different than her brothers in two matters, though, regarding this case. First of all, she got herself removed from the case on the grounds that she had stopped being part of the company when she went to the White House in 2017. Remember, she was a federal government employee, as was her husband, uh, during uh, Donald Trump's presidency. So she is not party to this case, although if there's a disgorgement, possibly she could have to fork back some money. But uh, not likely, but possibly. But secondly, Eric and Don Jr. depend on their father for their fortune. Nobody is going to hire them and pay them the way daddy pays them. But Jared Kushner, thanks to the manipulations he did well in the White House that got him this two billion dollar investment by the saudi government that he did all sorts of favors for is a very independently wealthy man so ivanka is not dependent on daddy in terms of her finances and that put her in position of having a little more freedom to speak 
and that she didn't do anything at all that helped her father's. No part of her testimony furthers her father's case. Uh, I don't recall just means that the document in question will stand as the best evidence, and that's not good for Donald. I think that's because she doesn't need daddy anymore. Right. Well, but don't you think, though, David, and you've, you've known this guy for decades, and you've written about him, the reason he showed up when he didn't have to show up at this trial is that this is the most important thing to him because his entire business edifice is a fraud, and everything that he's constructed is crumbling before his eyes because fraud is being exposed, and he psychologically can't handle it because we know that this is a guy that can't handle the truth. He couldn't handle the fact that he lost in 2016 in the popular vote, so he blamed it on five million Mexicans on the inauguration. He insisted he had huge crowds when he didn't, and I could go on. So this yeah. is this what's going on there, that this is... This yeah, is... Don, Donald, Donald is an empty vessel. He is his money. I mean, be glad you're not Donald Trump who will never know contentment, he doesn't know love, he, he, is an, he is a miserable, empty vessel because of the horrible upbringing that he had and his father's constant uh, uh, you know, beating into his children that you have to get the money, you have to win, it doesn't matter who gets hurt, just so long as you don't get arrested, if you got the money, you won. That's the only measure. That, that existed in that family. And I mean, Fred Trump, Donald's father, was so cheap that when a neighborhood boy named Johnny Messer was riding his bicycle down the street, uh, down the sidewalk in uh, Queens, where they lived, uh, he dropped a quarter out of his pocket. And just as Fred Trump pulled into the driveway in his, his Cadillac, and Johnny Messer turned around and went back to get his quarter and he says, oh, hello, Mr. Trump. And Trump reaches down and takes the quarter from this little boy. I mean, that, that, that's how despicable and, and soulless these people are. This is, Donald Trump, remember, had, and there's a, a lengthy proceeding about this with testimony. I wrote about it in my book, Temples of Chance, more than 30 years ago. Donald Trump had 12, 13, and 14-year-old children gambling in his casinos because they had a lot of money. And he gave them liquor and limousines and hotel rooms, suites, in fact, hotel suites, because they had money to gamble. And he saw nothing wrong with this. He, he was fined for it. He didn't lose his license. Uh, uh, that's how the regulatory system works, especially the absolutely fraudulent regulation of casinos in New Jersey. But, you know, if, if, if you have no problem with sixth graders gambling in your casino – there's something deeply empty inside of you, a lack of any kind of moral compass at all. And Donald has no moral compass. I, I don't know if you've seen the video of him from a talk a couple of nights ago where he praises uh, the dictator in North Korea and says he's the leader of 1.4 billion people. Of course, that's China, not North Korea. Um, so Donald is, you know, he's, he's miserable, he's empty, he's soulless, he's has no moral standards at all of any kind. And all he is, is about getting more money. That's why he claimed, you know, eight years ago, he claimed he was worth over $10 billion. 
Now they're down to talking about, well, $2 billion, $3 billion, maybe $1 billion. It's all a fraud. Even even the $1 billion is a fraud. So just in closing, though, David, he's cast a spell over a big chunk of America, uh, and I think to some extent you can blame NBC and that good Christian guy, Mark Burnett, for making Trump into this myth as a businessman from the yep. uh, TV show The Apprentice. But the long and the short of it is that he he won the debate last night because he wasn't even there. He's, what, 60 points ahead of the, his nearest rival to Sanders. So what's going on there? I mean, Well, I, I, if you look at the – I agree that all the polls show that Trump has this enormous lead, and he some states, show, they show him leading Biden in a matchup next year. But a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, I, I'm very dubious of the reliability of polls in recent years. John Geraci, who wrote the book Poll Arise, he's a pollster, points out that response rates on polls now are less than one in 100 phone calls. And even if it appears to be a random sample, he thinks it's really not a random sample of answers you're getting, and you shouldn't put much credence into these. Secondly, when pollsters ask what I call sideways questions instead of, would you vote for Trump or Biden, they ask questions about policies and things. Trump's numbers fall right away, and the very poll that the New York Times and Siena College did showing uh, in five of the six battleground states, Trump outdoing Biden. If Trump is convicted on any charge, that support just collapses and falls away, and Biden is way out front. Now, that's that's not to shill for Biden. This is just the reality of uh, Joe Biden is a highly competent guy who has shown an ability to work Washington and get enormous pieces of legislation passed where Trump did nothing except his tax cut for the rich and corporations. I mean, he doesn't have a single other accomplishment of any consequence. Uh, he has a list of things he does, and it includes things like renaming post offices. Uh, Trump, Trump does. And secondly, you know, we really need to not forget that the bottom 90% of Americans for a half century have been abused by Washington. They are only now under Biden starting to see their real wages rise, and it will take a long time to make up for all those years of flat to falling incomes. Um, I reported uh, two years ago that under Trump uh, in 2020, admittedly an odd year in, but in 2020, 82% of all the pay raises in America that year went to people who were already making a million dollars a year. And in 2021, the first year of the Biden administration, but under policies that were set by Bush, the million-dollar-plus people got an average raise, an average raise of $800,000 a year in pay. That's just their raise, not their pay, their raise, an average of $800,000, 500 times as much per person as workers making full-time workers making up to a quarter million dollars a year, which is 97% of the full-time workforce. The, the, the distortions in our economy that have been caused by the policies that began under Reagan and that were put on steroids by Trump continue to vex our economy. Most people, you know, you, your truck driver, waitress, office worker, school teacher, 
a cop, I mean, they don't go around thinking deeply about policy and economics. They just know, gee, things aren't getting better. Uh, Trump appeared to make them better. Trump said he was making them better. He said he's the only one who can save us. You know, that sounds good to me. I mean, that's the level of thinking that's going on here. And I think you will see the support for Trump continue to erode, which I predicted way back when uh, November of 2020, that over time, Trump's support would slow, slowly erode. Well, David K. Johnson, from your lips to God's ears, and I thank you for joining us. Thank you. Take care. You too. And again, I've been speaking with David K. Johnson, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of The Making of Donald Trump. A 13-year veteran of the New York Times, he won the Pulitzer Prize for reporting that uncovered loopholes and inequities in the U.S. tax code. And he's uncovered so many tax dodges that he's been called the de facto tax enforcement officer of the United States. He's also the co-founder of DCReport.org. And his latest book is The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and his family. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the military situation on the ground in Gaza and whether Netanyahu is destroyed emotionally and is a danger to Israel as a former Israeli Prime Minister charges. Oh yes, I'm the great pretender Adrift in a world of my own I play Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Daniel Byman, who's a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and editor of the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism, and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad. His latest book is Spreading Hate, the Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism, and he has an article at Foreign Affairs, What the Hamas Attack Means for Israel. Netanyahu has nothing but bad options. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Byman. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And there's a rather surprising, if not alarming, article in Politico with an interview they did with former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Omer, in which Omer says, Netanyahu has shrunk. He's destroyed emotionally, that's for sure. I mean, something terrible happened to him. Bibi has been working all his life on the false pretense that he's Mr. Security. He's Mr. Bullshit, Omar said. Every minute he's a prime minister is a danger to Israel. I seriously mean it. I'm certain the Americans understand he's in bad shape. So, Daniel, does Israel have a leadership problem? So, yes, although I think uh, hearing it from a former political rival is probably not the the most credible of sources. But uh, Netanyahu was not particularly popular among Israelis before October 7th. And this attack, of course, was devastating to Israel um, and was a surprise. And Netanyahu is seen as bearing some of the responsibility for that. And um, as Omar did say, uh, he was someone who sold himself as the man who would keep Israel secure, especially against the Palestinians. So that leading selling point has actually turned into a negative. So 
what do you think is happening on the ground, though, in terms of, of the military? I mean, we've also heard, of course, that there are clashes in within the cabinet with Smotrich, the finance minister, at, at loggerheads with the defense minister because Smotrich wants to cut off funds to the West Bank, which the defense minister saying, you know, that's crazy. The, the place is a tinderbox and we've got our hands full with Gaza. So that aside, what do you think is happening in terms of a military strategy here? Because my sense is that even though Netanyahu said this thing's going to go on for months, it seems like it may actually be resolved much, much sooner. Not that there's going to be any real resolution, but in terms of of defeating Hamas, um, my sense is that it's probably going to happen sooner than later. What do you think? So a lot depends on how Israel defines defeating Hamas. Uh, right now, Israel seems to be doing uh, slow but steady advances into Gaza City in the northern part of Gaza Strip. And, you know, that involves very hard fighting. And it's a grind, and Israel is making progress, but it's the sort of thing that will take... Um, you know, probably weeks uh, if Israel's going to take over the whole area. And then, of course, there is the rest of Gaza. Uh, but if Israel defines uh, victory as simply hitting Hamas hard, uh, killing many of its fighters, uh, targeting some of its leadership, um, that's a much more achievable goal. And it's one that Israel could uh, declare victory and go home at some point. So um, a lot to me depends on what is going to satisfy Israel. And I'm not sure Israel has made that decision. I think that's still being debated among the leading Israelis. Well, it seems, though, that this the strategy is to destroy uh, the fuel supplies that the, the Hamas have since they've d- built this sort of underground warren of, of tunnels which rely on generators to pump air and oxygen in. So if that's what's happening, then doesn't that put the hostages in danger as well? Uh, Absolutely. And uh, this is a question where I think Israel's past might actually not be prologue here. So historically, Israel was exceptionally sensitive uh, to hostages as it um, conducted policy and as it conducted military operations. Uh, but we are seeing very aggressive Israeli military operations that, at least according to some reports, are leading to the death of hostages, which frankly would be hard to avoid, given that they're probably scattered throughout Gaza, and a lot of Gaza is being bombed. Um, so it's quite possible that whether Israel's um, targeting tunnels or otherwise going after uh, Hamas's infrastructure, that that's also going to involve risk to hostages. Well, of course, Netanyahu's had to fire a far-right minister from his government who called for the dropping of a nuclear bomb on Gaza and killing everyone. That's his recommendation for dealing with the threat from Hamas. This is the minister for of heritage from the ultranationalist Jewish Power Party. So what's your sense then of... We've talked about Netanyahu and Smotrich and this other minister. How much is the traditionally divisive Israeli politics. I mean, years ago, Henry Kissinger once said that Israel doesn't have a foreign policy, it just has domestic politics. Are domestic politics starting to intrude on this war, or are they all sort of cooperating with each other in spite of their differences because the country's at war? So a bit of both. Uh, Domestic politics has been there from the start, really, 
as the you know almost shortly after the attack, uh, there was criticism of Netanyahu, and he was defending his uh, position and what he's done. And you know, part of bringing in several other people into his war cabinet who in the past uh, were in opposition, political opposition, uh, was to defang them politically, to share responsibility for what happens in Gaza, come what may. Uh, but that said, the war is going forward. Israel is prosecuting it, and military operations are commencing. So you're seeing uh, politics happen and will continue to happen and may even grow. But at the same time, military operations can continue as well. It's not, in the Israeli case, one or the other. So. Do you know what the strategy is? Because my understanding is that the idea is to kill all of the Hamas fighters and then basically, you know, hand over the territory, which will be largely rubble, at least the northern half, to the UN and have Arab countries like Qatar pick up the tab. What's your sense of, of what the end game is here? Uh, I don't think Israel has an end game. I think there are a bunch of different ideas floating about some of which are politically unrealistic, some of which are extremely costly, some of which would involve a massive ongoing Israeli presence. Um, and there, to my knowledge at least, I don't think Israel has articulated um, a concrete strategy for how it's going to achieve uh, its goals. Uh, the goals right now attempt to be more slogans and combined with limited or shouldn't say limited, fairly aggressive military operations. But they're an actual plan that is achievable, that Israel's working for diplomatically, that at least um, doesn't seem to be in the, um, in the works yet. But Hamas's strategy, if it has one, is to kill as many Israelis as possible, knowing that Israel has a high price on its, as it's on its civilians, as we learned from the October 7th hideous attack and also on its soldiers, and it's probably going to lose more soldiers this time around. I think it already has compared to the last incursion into Gaza, whereas Hamas, being full of martyrs, is not worried about death. Is that, is that how you see it? Um, so Hamas um, is far more willing to lose its own people and it's also far more willing to sacrifice ordinary Palestinians, um, as we've already seen. Uh, but having said that, its reserves are not infinite. It has a finite number of leaders. It has a finite number of fighters. Um, it wants to preserve its power. It wants to expand its power. So Hamas um, is, at times, can be hit to the point where it's deterred, where it doesn't do certain operations. But overall, it relies heavily on its greater willingness to accept casualties uh, when compared with Israel, which historically has been very casually sensitive. So how does Hamas get its arms? I mean, it's under a blockade from both Israel and, and Egypt, and yet it's getting all kinds of arms flooding in. I mean, I take it they come in through the Sinai, through Bedouin smugglers, and then through tunnels. Maybe some stuff comes from the ocean with all the fishing boats out there. What's your understanding of how they do it? Because uh, they've apparently are pretty well equipped. Nothing with, like the Israeli army, but they've got a formidable arsenal. And that's absolutely right. And uh, we do think that most of it came through Egypt. And this is one of the, one of the many surprises 
of the last few months where there was a sense that, of course, Hamas was armed and it had rockets and missiles and ammunition and otherwise had formed a mini army. But uh, the estimation was that its forces had uh, far fewer weapons than they actually had in reality. So on October 7th, Hamas, of course, did this massive raid into Israel, but it also did a much greater rocket and um, missile attack on Israel at the same time, suggesting its weapon supplies were far larger than had been previously estimated. And, of course, we know that uh, Hezbollah in the north has built up a massive arsenal of rockets as well. So is this local strategy or is this Iran strategy? Well, it's uh, uh, certainly uh, what Hamas has done helps Iran, and Hezbollah, uh, much more than Hamas, is actually very close to Iran. And so Iran is trying to use these groups to put pressure on Israel and to expand Iran's own influence in the region. But uh, Hamas has always maintained some degree of independence from Iran. At times, they've even had fairly significant splits. And here is the case of mutual interest. They both want to strike Israel. Um, they both want Hamas to be stronger in order to strike Israel. So Iran benefits from the Hamas operation in many ways, and Iran made Hamas much stronger. But it's still a question mark in terms of how much Iran was responsible for this particular operation. Well, they are, in effect, uh, on three borders of Israel, right, in terms of the influence of Iran, Gaza, Syria, and Lebanon. Uh, yes, that's correct. And that's uh, part of the reason Israel has been so concerned about events in Syria, not just the its broader relationship with Syria, which has often been hostile, but fear that Iran would successfully turn this into another front. So if you take the word of Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, seriously, he made a big speech, what was it, last Friday, that it, it sort of took to the uh, up to the brink of of pulling the trigger on Hezbollah, but did say that the, the American ships off the coast are not a threat to them. In fact, they thre they could threaten those ships. The U.S. has been uh, sending planes in to bomb uh, Quds and IRGC bases in Syria. So the latest stuff you're hearing from Hezbollah is that if, if the bombing of Gaza continues, they are, in fact, going to unleash... I guess, a barrage of rockets and start a, a second front. How likely do you think that is? Um, I know it's speculation. So that seems much less likely than people feared a month ago. Um, Hezbollah has been trying to show solidarity with Hamas. It's done limited attacks on Israel, uh, but it has shied away from a more massive all-out assault. It's already lost in the last month a significant number of people in this back and forth with Israel. Um, and the Friday speech was, was a mix. So as you'd expect, it denounces Israel and it praises Hamas. And there's a lot of bellicose language. But it doesn't take much reading between the lines to see how cautious his fellow is being. Uh, he repeatedly congratulated Hamas on having surprised everyone and said, you know, good job. We knew nothing about this. Right. He was clearly trying to send a message that his was not part of this coordinated operation. Um, and he was not saying, you know, his is going to jump in here. So this was something that 
seemed to be rhetorical support, and Hezbollah has done limited military operations. But a lot of the fears that this was going to erupt into a massive regional war, I won't say are gone, but are, are diminished at least from a few weeks ago. So, Daniel, I don't know whether venturing into domestic politics is particularly helpful, but there was a debate last night of the Republican presidential candidates minus the front runner, and Christie and Nikki Haley wanted to both support Israel and Ukraine, and the others are a little bit shaky. But I don't understand the Republican thinking here, because if you want to wholeheartedly support Israel, which they do, and they keep reminding us of how much they want to support Israel, but not support Ukraine, I mean, how could that make sense? Because if Israel's main enemy is Iran, and Iran is in an alliance with Russia, and Russia is attacking Ukraine, then why not support Ukraine? Because indirectly, it's the same enemy, uh, Iran. Um, my sense of the Republican thinking is it's entirely political, and that politics centers around one man, which is the man not at the debate, Donald Trump. He has repeatedly praised Russia and repeatedly criticized Ukraine. And so when war broke out, he was not on the side of Ukraine and has made a point of criticizing aid to Ukraine. And even though many of the people in the debate last night are ostensibly competing with Trump, they're all vying for his voters. And many of them, whether it's a stolen election or other claims like that, have been repeating things that Trump has said that are false or are bad in strategic terms for the United States. And in so doing, it's simply making a political gesture rather than trying to determine what is best in terms of consistency and supporting U.S. interests. So back to uh, Hamas, what do you make of the talks going on in Qatar with the head of the CIA and the head of the Mossad talking with their Qatari counterparts to get the hostages out. Do you think there's any possibility of that? Or And apparently Israel has just agreed to a daily four-hour humanitarian pause in Gaza. So a pause, especially in exchange for some hostage releases, um, does seem at least possible. And as you um, know, there's been uh, press reporting indicating that a deal of some sort might be in the works. So it's possible to me that some hostages might be released and that there would be semi-regular humanitarian pauses where aid could go in and people could flee uh, combat areas. So uh, let's hope that that happens both for the Palestinians and for the hostages. But the number of hostages who would be released seems to be rather limited, given that we have still have over 200 in captivity. So releasing 10 or 15 may be a significant number in some ways, but it's still going to be huge numbers of people held captive. So it's most likely they'll release the foreign hostages, right? The Americans and the French. Uh, and that's, pro that, that's probably right. It's possible they might release some of the most elderly or children. So uh, that's uh, possible as well. Well, Daniel Byman, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Byman, who's a professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and editor of the Lawfare blog. He served on the 9-11 Commission staff and is the author of a number of books, including A High Price, The Triumphs and Failures of Israeli Counterterrorism, and Road Warriors, Foreign Fighters in the Armies of Jihad. And his latest book is Spreading Hate, The Global Rise of White Supremacist Terrorism. And he has an article of foreign affairs, What the Hamas Attack Means for Israel, Netanyahu Has Nothing But Bad Options. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh